Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. And there we go. We are recording and we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And our special guest for today's episode is Jeremy Smith, the author of Hacking Christianity, our ongoing blog and one of our favorites. So uh, Jessica helped us make this connection and I am pleased as punch with it. Uh, there are not strong enough idioms to express how excited I am for this conversation, Jeremy. Um, so well, that's, that's um, I'll repeat it right back at you, Natalie. Oh, you're sweet. And yeah, so the first place we tend to start in all of our podcast interviews is for you to share as much as you'd like to with us about your spiritual journey. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I do want to say thank you to, um, I've had a um, uh, on the blog, um, Jessica and I have collaborated a few times, um, and uh, so it's great to, several years later, uh, be able to uh, put a face to an email, uh, so which is uh, really great. Um, but yeah. um, so I come from a, a long line of dangerous liberal lady preachers um, of growing up in, in Oklahoma. And uh, so they had a, uh, uh, grew up going to, to sort of the moderate to liberal urban church that then moved out to the suburbs um, and became the suburban, more moderate to conservative um, cons uh, church. And so my spiritual journey really parallels that move because when we were uh, downtown in a much more diverse space. I love church, love growing up there. The children's ministry was amazing. My spirituality waited every week for the Sunday school teacher to bring out a gold box and she would set it down in front of us and she would say, I wonder, wonder if this is a parable, if this is a gift um, that is given to us and we need to uh, to open it and find out what's the gift inside. And so my spirituality was really oriented around that gift each week of someone willing to spend time with me and of uh, that 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 gold box of parables. Um, so that was uh, growing up in my early years. Uh, and then that move to the suburb coincided with middle school and high school for me, which are just terrible for anyone's spirit, of course. And they had, and, and it was a shift because the church grew really fast, but the folks that were coming there were um, a different class than me, me being a lower, um, uh, a lower middle class. And then the, this group here was right next to um, a very wealthy subdivision and things like that. And so, uh, the the teasing about having you know one pair of pants to wear um, uh, most one pair of dress pants uh, that I I preferred to wear um, not that I was the only one I had of course but the one that I preferred to wear 
you know, so those those things started to wear on me. And I remember not wanting to go to church and not wanting to make the longer drive and wanting to uh, uh, I faked having a TV fall on me one day to get out of Bible study, which my parents saw through immediately, of course. But it was a time where I was trying to figure out what did it mean to follow God when there is a boundary or a barrier or an obstacle in front of me. Uh, <clears throat> in my case, it was class, um, but in other cases of folks that you and I uh, work with, um, it, there's so many other boundaries. And so for me, my spirituality really came from what are the boundaries that get in the way of an experience of God and how can we remove them? Uh, mm -hmm. So for me, my, um, you know, that was, uh, uh, so then when I was graduating high school, uh, or when we're, I'm sorry, I'll, my last three years of high school, we moved to a different town uh, in Oklahoma. We moved to Broken Arrow, just outside of Tulsa. Um, and we found another church that was much more mission-driven and had a dynamic uh, uh, new uh, deacon, uh, past, uh, 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 youth pastor. Yes, you're welcome, Jace, Jessica. Um, and they had, and he, he did this, this very underhanded thing of having high school students teach middle school students Bible study. Very underhanded, very sneaky, because in that teaching, I found my call to ministry. And that, that really aligned with my spirit of wanting to, um, uh, of wanting to uh, teach and lead in those different things. So I think that when I, uh, and and that led to uh, me going into uh, ministry, uh, my grandfather was a pastor in Oklahoma annual conference. Uh, he was the assistant to the bishop. Um, my dad was not, um, he was a PK. Um, uh, and then, um, so I'm a, so it skipped a generation, but that's okay uh, to be a PGK, I guess. And um, so then after that, just uh, undergraduate, and then, you know, you're uh, some Boston University for you uh, uh, New Englanders, and, um, and here I am. Uh, so I think the, the, when you ask about a spiritual journey, it's, um, it's that removing obstacle, ob obstacles piece that sits with me, um, is mm -hmm. that the spirit is all around us, that God is guiding us, um, or present, or allure, whatever your, um, I, uh, whatever your idea is, and it's just finding how to, uh, how to get there. Does that, does that resonate with any of you, or any of your? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, thousand percent. I appreciate totally. your discussion of um, breaking down boundaries um, over breakfast this morning. My mom is visiting. This is she's been here about a month, so she's like going back to Colorado this uh, week. But um, she was. We were saying this morning. I said I feel like the the concept of sanctification has almost been totally excised from a lot of the American church these days, and it's almost like. You have to there people have to keep the Holy Spirit out because the Holy Spirit might break down their boundaries and they can't have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually I saw um I saw a really prophetic cartoon this morning. 
that um, it, it kind of dovetails with what Jessica was saying. And it does, you know, talk about, it, it does touch on what you were saying, Jeremy, about like all these boundaries that we have about church life. And it was by David Hayward, who we've had on this podcast. He's better known by the naked pastor. And it was it, somebody in the pulpit wearing a smiley face mask, preaching to a congregation full of people who are all wearing smiley face masks. And what he's saying to them That's is- good. Yeah, I need you to all be really vulnerable with each other. And it, it, it just, I, I felt so seen and David's really good at that. Um, but yeah, no, if, if anything has ever summed up, you know, what it can feel like to be in the church, that was it. Absolutely, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. If you have not yet had the pleasure of meeting David, you really need to. He is I a haven't wonderful. met him. I've read him for many years. Yeah, read, <laughs> read or, or viewed his work for many years. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So we'd love to talk to you about your work. And I'm going to front load this um, by saying that in the crazy thing that has become the United Methodist split, and I'm using my highest, most liturgical language to describe that. Um, it, I have depended heavily on hacking Christianity because you do an excellent job of, of getting all of the details in that, because there's so much press going around and not just from the United Methodist News Service, our press and our press is it, it's it's ours so it's biased it can't not be no press is unbiased really um but you know we have what the umns is putting out we have what the reconciling ministries network is putting out we have what the wesleyan covenant association and then the global methodist church is putting out um and then we have all kinds of third party stuff people that are kind of sitting in the wings trying to you know put their own spin on it or just you know catch a sound bite and put it out there for their own reasons but hacking christianity your blog has done this great job of okay these are the facts the things that you need to know to catch you up to speed on uh protocols that have been passed on big movements that have happened on judicial council rulings like let's get everybody up to speed on where we are now on you know, it's it, it, because it's been like catching up with like the young and the restless when you haven't seen the last 12 episodes. Like, but 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 what happened to, 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 to Victor and his girlfriend? Like, did they break up? Did she come out of her coma? I missed everything. It was the so brain it, transplant from one to the other that, that woke, yes. woke, woke her up. <laughs> so you are very gifted at giving us that recap. And then explaining missionally your viewpoint of how we can proceed faithfully. And I've shared your articles with my parishioners and I have said, you know, again, there's no unbiased press. So this is also coming from a viewpoint, but it's a viewpoint that I, that, you know, Pastor Natalie shares in common and one that I'd like you to consider in the midst of all the other viewpoints. So well done, good and faithful servant, because you have helped us survive this very mucky mess. Well, um, thank you. I'm certainly glad to hear whenever it's used in a local church or when yeah. it's not, when folks beyond church nerds, which um, I think I'm in good company on this call, uh, yeah. are, are uh, find value in it. So thank you, Natalie. 
Oh yeah, totally. And we are nerdy church nerds. Let me tell you, nerdy, 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 but I'd love to hear more about your blog and about the, the play on words and what it means to hack Christianity. Uh, sure. Uh, well, we just, it's an opportune time because I've been reflecting backwards. This uh, last month was 15 years of writing online. And uh, it started uh, midway through my first appointment. I was appointed to a small community just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I had, uh, it was uh, it was only half time. Um, I was a cross-conference appointment. And so um, I, even though I was commissioned, you know, I didn't merit a full appointment yet uh, being cross-conference. And that's the story of my life being cross-conference. Uh, but uh, with many, many moves along my, my journey from Massachusetts to Oklahoma to Oregon to now I'm the pastor at uh, First Methodist in downtown Seattle. Uh, they, uh, so back then I had this extra you know, half time, which isn't really half time. I had like five hours a week, maybe, uh, that I had it free. And I had been reading, you know, um, back then they talked about the Google 20%, is that the engineers at Google could work 20% of their time on pet projects. And that's where actually Gmail came from, is um, some engineers working part-time on projects. So I started working uh, part-time on uh, turning some assorted online writings that I'd been doing, trying to put them into one place under my name, because it felt like it needed to be authentic uh, to share, this is, what, this is what I think, and this is what um, uh, is helpful to me. Also, I'm a raging extrovert, and talking to myself is, um, has limited appeal. Uh, so, um, uh, being able to to reach out to to folks at the time in 2008, there were certainly some progressive uh, uh, United Methodist blogs and voices out there. Um, but um, I think there's a difference between voices that will share where they are and voices that will go intentionally into. Um, into the woods or where are where all the rodents of unusual sizes are um, or where all these different uh, things are are happening and so I tried to be somebody that uh, led into that um, but where the <clears throat> where the name came from is that I'm a nerd um, and so I would code websites in my spare time and there was a uh, there was a systematic theology class in seminary uh, Dr. Wegter McNelly, I believe, and uh, he and he and so at the end, the capstone piece, of course, was write a write a systematic theology, and he said and he suggested using a guiding image, and so at the time I was again coding and being a nerd, and so I I made a Wikipedia theology where you would like a self-contained Wikipedia where you could you know click on the different words and jump around on the website. So I submitted it as a website rather than a paper. Uh, which was a little bit of a problem, but he enjoyed the format. Uh, so the the hacking piece came from that sort of constructive analysis of how do we remove again spirituality, remove boundaries to folks, you know, because hacking isn't just breaking into things and going where you need to go. It is making things accessible to more people, 
um, like hacking printer ink to be uh, uh, available to to use more of the printer cartridge or things like that. Uh, so or that's really jailbreaking. Sorry, like jailbreaking software. Um, like I've heard about this, the right yes. to repair on certain types of tractors, jailbreaking mm -hmm. John Deere's or something like that. You so, got it exactly right, Jessica. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can be, con and that really, so it wasn't really life hacking, like, ooh, finding this uh, new new way to, to use your everyday stuff, um, but it wasn't malicious either. Um, although I've been called a hack job more than once, which is fine. Uh, but I think that, so really the superhero or supervillain uh, or somewhere in between origin story, uh, Natalie, is where uh, is being in a place and serving a people, but finding that there were conversations I really wanted to have and I didn't know where to have them other than um, making them myself. And then that did become a place where some of our um, progressive voices could come and say, hey, can I write a guest article for you, put myself out there and see, uh, see what happens. And that turns into their own blog or their own ministry, uh, things like that. And so that's been, that's been a really great joy is collaborating with lots of different uh, folks, um, in, uh, uh, including, uh, including many um, uh, dangerous liberal lady, lady pastors, preachers, um, and uh, trying to uh, both create a space for folks to you know, speak and be, um, while also trying to keep my voice out there um, as well, uh, especially in places where um, where it can be, I've got a lot of privilege, and so I feel like I can walk into spaces that are a lot more um, that are a lot more hard contact. Um, and because of my privilege, I'm able to wade in there or you know at least distract people away from harming people uh, for a little bit. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah, it, your your spirit of how you found hacking Christianity is is very similar to kind of the origin story of this podcast. But yeah, um, that and and it's it's it it started with me, and then I and then after I came up with the idea, I started asking you know other dangerous liberal lady preachers if they would be part of my dream team. And I thought of, you know, the, 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 uh, the most uh, badass women of the cloth that I can think of that would be really, really fun to work with. And Emma and Jess came right to the top and, and said, hell yes, sister, we're in the boat with you. Um, but, it, it, you know, so the name itself came from, in, from a comment troll on YouTube. And, um, it, and it's similar to like, when you talk about, you know, like you're hacking something and hacking can be perceived in a very bad way. And also they can easily turn that into an insult and call you a hack job or something like that. But it really, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of room to play with that language and playing with language. There's just huge uh, spiritual energy that can come from that. Like this guy that called me a dangerous liberal, like that was three years ago. And I've been dining out on that ever since, because that, that's the biggest gift that anybody's ever given my ministry, because there was just so much power that came from that. And you can, you know, you can subvert even something negative into something that gives you a huge wind in your sail. 
if you know what I mean. But, um, you know, in our space, we play with, you know, well, what does it really mean to be dangerous? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, because when this guy called me that, like, I laughed because it was like, it was in the middle of the COVID pandemic. I have three kids under the age of 10 who are all much younger than like I have a favorite oatmeal cookie recipe and I drive a minivan. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm dangerous, then what do you think is safe? And the answer is probably not much. And it, it, it betrays a lot, you know, and what does it mean to be liberal? It's extremely contextual. If you put me in, you know, if you put all three of us in a room with a bunch of other clergy people, where would we land? all over the place probably I think I sit a little further to the left but then it depends on who you put me with like if I'm in a room full of uh UU pastors I'm probably going to sit just a little closer to the right in that crowd whereas if you put me in a room full of uh you know people who graduated from a more conservative seminary I'm going to sit way on the left you know and how that plays into like political identities and social stuff like it's just all over the place and I love you know so a word like hacking Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right it makes things more it, it makes things accessible it breaks down barriers it makes things understandable Um, It changes things for the better, like when you hack a video game so that you can get more play out of it, or when you hack a computer program so that you can extend its life. Um, And you you and using that language would be a hero to my nine-year-old son because he's very, he's very technical. He really likes computers and uh, he, he thinks, he thinks that being a hacker is like really funny and like the coolest thing that he wants to do someday. (laughs) So, you know, what, you know, what comes off as kind of scary or dangerous to one person is a whole lot of fun to somebody else, you know, like, it's just that joke from a few years ago, um, people wearing t-shirts that said, I live by the Konami code. (laughs) Yeah. No, I don't remember that. Yeah. Oh, up, up, down, down, left, light, right, light, left, right, left, right, AB start or something like that. EA select start, just yeah. so that we get the gospel in there correctly. Okay. Oh, <laughs> gotcha. Interesting. There you go. And also, I really love your spirit about um, using some of, using like a portion of your allotted time in your work to create something new. Mm-hmm. because like it, it's one place where we can look to you know a huge conglomerate business like google and like you know and take some good from that because a lot of a lot of newness of life and innovation comes from that and i mean it's 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 how we're creating this podcast is from you know taking taking some time you know to 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 create something that that really nobody asked for but <laughs> I think has been a big gift to those who have listened to it. Um, mm-hmm. and certainly to us and to everyone that we've interviewed. Oh, sure. Um, I think and that's... yeah. And I mean, in our churches, 
we're, we're not taking those kinds of risks very often. We're not encouraging one another to take those kinds of risks very often. We're just kind of hoping to do the same thing over and over. And maybe the reason why our churches aren't growing is because like we didn't put out enough ads in the penny saver about our upcoming rummage sale. <laughs> so maybe next time we need to take out a full page ad instead of a half page ad. And then like people with like bad vision will see it. And then they'll come into our church. Like it's we're not very we're dangerous, not, but uh, yeah, like we need yeah. to hack ministry mm-hmm. in order yes. to do it very differently, in order to extend its life and make it accessible. That's the only way. Well, and I think that's. I mean, hacking ministry could be its own whole sister blog. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Natalie's got a lot of free time with three kids in a church and a podcast and everything. Maybe she could write it, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I think to wrestling with the language around what does it mean to hack and be a hacker and, and, and how, how that can be a double-edged sword. Same thing with the word dangerous or the word liberal, like uh, any of those words can kind of be double-edged swords, right? And, and I think that that's very, I mean, it's biblical to recognize that and powerful to embrace that and also kind of gives me a sense of responsibility um, that if I'm going to call myself dangerous which I am by participating in this podcast which is not a word that I embrace very naturally Um, I it's it just doesn't it's not something that would organically flow from me. It's something that I signed on to when Natalie said it. Um, It's been a bit of a process for me to embrace what it means to call myself a dangerous liberal lady preacher and what, which side of that sort I'm going to use and and how and where and when. And I think the same can be true for hacking Christianity. I think that there are a lot of people right now who are bad actors hacking the gospel and using it to cause significant harm Um, and so i appreciate that that you're seeing your ministry through your blog as uh as making it more accessible for people as kind of giving out the cheat codes so to speak yeah i like that giving out the cheat codes uh emily thank you um I think yeah. we're all in good company, of course, being Methodists, having that be the thing that um, that the students at Oxford made fun of John Wesley for, um, uh, or um, advocating for a person. Uh, and we've seen in the LGBTQIA plus community of a reclaiming of queer um, in recent years uh, from a slur to um, a uh, an identity. And so I think that, uh, and and that can also be a generational uh, generational thing is that sometimes folks who grew up with the common nomenclature or things uh, that it's a little bit easier to access uh, access uh, things are more accessible mm-hmm. um, but uh, folks who didn't uh, it's uh, it's it's a lot harder to do that uh, it, it does make me excited about the coming decades of ministry um, that um, all of us in our in, in our youth, um, uh, uh, even if, even if we don't feel it every day, um, uh, we definitely are, uh, that we have a, uh, that there's this sense that folks are growing up without, uh, who are outside the church and therefore they don't remember 
the 23rd Psalm in KJV, mm -hmm. you know, and they don't require that whenever we read the 23rd Psalm that we, um, you know, read the restoreth me, you know, read the mm -hmm. KJV language, which is speaks to me certainly growing up with it. Um, but, um, or, you know, masculine language for God in the hymns or, um, or herms rather, um, and all these different things. And so I feel like that we are entering into the season where there are folks that are getting to know Christianity without the burden of those, um, language that hasn't stood the test of time. Um, and so it's just that we're not quite over the, um, we're, we're just not quite over that hill yet, um, where some of those vestiges of the past can be left, um, left, left apart. Yeah, totally. And also we just, we need each other in this, yeah. you know, we, there, we need people who remind us about the beauty and tradition and this link to many generations of ancestors that comes from KJV language. There's absolutely a place for that. And then we need, you know, people who have never read the KJV because we, we need to grow into a different space. And then we need to have people who have a completely different translation or who never use KJV or who, you know, come from, you know, totally left field. It expanded my mind when I started reading the message for the first time. Not my favorite worship tool, but definitely something that, you know, shakes up old passages like Psalm 23. And, you know, to Emily's point about, you know, she wouldn't exactly, she doesn't naturally embrace a word like dangerous. Well, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have Emily with us in this space, because she is going to play with that energy differently than I will and differently than Jessica will and differently than you will, Jeremy. Like we're all bringing something different to it, you know? By the way, jumping back to something that we just kind of went sliding by earlier, Natalie mentioned her favorite cookie recipe. She's the one who taught me how to make cookies delicious. Um, oh, what well, that's you a, and I were baking keeps on giving. Yeah, Natalie and I were baking cookies together one time and I was like following the recipe or whatever. And she looked at me so, so serious and said, um, more butter. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And so I put like a little, I don't know, half tablespoon in and she said, no, no. <laughs> so that's, that's the answer. That's, that's your cheat code for the most delicious cookies in the world is more butter. That's, 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 that's what's on the mug is M it's, more butter. <laughs> Make them really unhealthy. Come on. If you're going to have a cookie, have a damn cookie girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Martin Luther, um, when you sin, sin boldly. Yes, I like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you can hack cookies in any direction that you want to bring out something different every single time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, my partner is a is uh, loves baking, and she she does that. She's always on the quest for the perfect cookie, which of course every time she makes it, it's perfect. But. Um, then she asked me, was this better or worse than the cookies I made in the summer of 2009? You know, like, those <laughs> sort of questions, like, the, like very investigative questions. Come, so. Tell me you've seen that Friends episode, right? Uh, yeah, we Friends and Seinfeld is our love language. Um, but it, it's, it's a, I, I did not, I didn't watch Friends or Seinfeld growing up. Um, and so I don't know what she saw in me. Um, but 
I had to watch all of those to really learn how to speak to her and her family. And so um, it's that, that mission uh, that we need to learn the accent of the people that we care about. Um, My husband and I, our love language is the Simpsons. There you go. See, yeah, everybody's got their love language. So yeah, totally. I, I really appreciated the fact that, um, you know, we're talking about the idea of hacking Christianity for people who have been in it, grown up in it, people who haven't. So yeah. you're in Seattle. You were previously in Portland, which I missed you by like five weeks when I came out in August of 2017. I remember, yeah. <laughs> we came out to see the eclipse, which was amazing, by the way. And there's uh, going to be one here in April next year in Buffalo. I will um, try to not miss you by five weeks then. Yeah. Please come join us. Um and that goes for you and you too, Natalie and Emily. I don't know if you're on the the um, eclipse path and where you are in New York, but okay. um, mm -hmm. so you're you probably are in a very unchurched space, um, also a space which was colonized briefly by Mars Hill and that extremely toxic kind of um, Christianity. Um, I've been working, so I do, I've been doing some Bible studies on and off, and I do like one, the same material for both my people at church and then also my people who are, some of them are unchurched, non-believers, but still want to learn about the Bible over Zoom. And I find myself having to do kind of a little bit of a crash catechumenate for my people who are not, who really weren't raised in the church or who haven't been in the church, they don't know. Do you find yourself doing the same thing, kind of a hack catechumenate for people who come into your church? That's a great question, Jessica, and yes. Um, so like I said, I've served in Massachusetts, Oklahoma, originally from Oklahoma, went back and served Oklahoma uh, for three years in rural Oklahoma. Um, and so the, the disparity, or not the disparity, the bookend is what do we say before the reading of scripture? You know, that in both of those first two appointments, Massachusetts, from, you know, East Coast to uh, Bible Belt, we would give a prayer for illumination, right? Mm -hmm. um, a prayer of, you know, please guide us to, you know, God to um, open our open our spirits to what we're about to read. Um, but in Portland and in, um, and in Seattle, uh, which was happening at at the church that I was appointed to, and then I brought it to Seattle, uh, is that we give an introduction to scripture. And so every week I'm giving, I'm giving a few minutes of uh, this is a gospel. This is what this gospel, this is what a gospel means. This is, this is originally a letter. Imagine you wrote a letter. So it's, it's always about the genre. You know, this is, this is the genre of what we're reading. So you know how to hold it. Um, and that, um, you know, so we may not think to do that as often, and I don't know what you all do in your contexts, um, but in my context, it, it has worked really well to give introductions to scripture in every worship service, like a mini catechumenate, like you just said, Jessica, of trying to explain these are what's going on. Um, um, in the past 10 years, I've made lots of charts on hacking Christianity, and the one that everyone keeps coming back to is the one on atonement about showing where uh, atonement is. And that comes from that, Jess, about asking where do we, um, you know, how do we, how do we educate about these things in ways that are accessible to people? 
Um, and so I think that being in being a Bible Belt person, educated in the Northeast, um, and um, but now serving out in the Northwest uh, in one of the spots, I think I think I think we keep fighting with is it part of Rhode Island that is like almost almost as many nuns are in some some spot in the in in New England uh, is. Yeah, it keeps fighting with Seattle for the most unchurch for the most folks who write uh, none on their on their census forms. Uh, so so I, I found that um, I found that uh, giving introductions is helpful. Um, we've found that you know just being bold about who we are. Um, you mentioned Mars Hill and First Church Seattle has a very intimate relationship with Mars Hill. Um, because we sold our church building, a hundred-year-old church building in 2008, and built a new church building, um, you know, a mile across town in 2010. And then just a, a little bit after that, um, uh, Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill rented our original church building and turned it into one of his sites. And he would say, you know, we are the the old is dead and gone, we are the new. You know, we are the, we are the folks that are doing really great things. Look at, look at us taking over this old church that failed um, and, um, and doing something better. I mean, now, A, this is before my time, but A, we did not fail, we moved across town. You know, we moved out of a mission field that was no longer serving, that we were no longer able to serve to a new mission field that we were. And continue to do our um, homeless and hungry um, and and hunger outreach. Um, um, and then, of course, um, uh, a few months into that, a Methodist bishop came to Seattle, visited, and went to, instead of going to First Seattle and wrote a blog about how First Seattle is doing nice things, you know, but really the gospel energy was at Mars Hill. He went to Mars Hill instead of instead of a Methodist church, wrote about it. And then a few years later, you know, Mars Hill is toast. Um, First church is still going on. And that bishop was Bishop Mike Lowry, who just left for the global Methodist church. So you see how I'm in a place that has been in the thick of it. Um, and I've actually argued with before I was even pastor for Seattle, uh, about that that incident. So I think that, you know, we being in a place that has so many folks that are outside of of religious um, experience, uh, 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 religious communities, not spiritual, of course, religious communities, and then being also in the place of these really. Um, really aggressive evangelicalism is a really weird place to be in the middle, to be moderate between those two forces. Um, so that's, I don't know where you started with that, Jessica, but that's where, um, that's where I just ended up. Yeah, well, I think that was, that was great. Thank you. Um, because that's something that I think about a lot in terms of millennials and Gen Z, either having departed the church entirely or never having been brought up in it in the first place and just making sure that people have accurate information about 
what is, you know, Christian doctrine? What is the history of Christianity? What is the Bible? You know, what is um, the deal with the Bible? And just being very open and honest about these things are problematic in Christian history. These particular doctrines are problematic. These passages in the Bible are very problematic. Just being honest about it. And people appreciate that. They, they you know, not pretending that the metaphors about God being married to Israel and what a violent, abusive relationship that is in the prophets, um, you know, those are pretty rough passages. They're in some are what Fellas Trouble would call texts of terror. Um, I prefer not to gloss over that. I prefer to not pretend that it doesn't exist because it does and people want to talk about it. So we do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And all of this, I'm, I'm hearing it gelling in a certain direction, so I'm going to take us there as long as y'all are comfortable with it. In terms of the, the, different, you know, the different movements that, that we have been part of and have sat between and where young people are feeling connected to the church today, the four of us are sitting here as Methodists on the precipice of what the past of the United Methodist Church has been what the future of it could be, but is completely unwritten mm -hmm. and what we might like to see within this movement. So I'm wondering, especially from your very valuable perspective, Jeremy, like what, what gives you hope about the United Methodist Church right now? What would you like to see it happening in the future? Yeah, uh, thank you, Natalie. Um, yeah. There's a word I found a few years ago called interregnum. Um, and it kind of, it, oh, Jessica's heart over there. I don't know what just happened. The, the whole it's, a, it's a great word. We never use it because we don't have royalty anymore, we, but it's, we it's don't have royalty. Word. We don't have a Pope. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's the, um, the gap in between leadership, you know, like when the Pope dies, you know, we, the interregnum is in between when there's still a church and everything's still operating, but they don't have a, someone leading them in. It, translating that into Methodist ease, you know, we are going through a season of disaffiliations, of splintering off of folks who um, have long admired uh, more Mark Driscoll than um, than than the Methodist heritage, um, and are looking to, and so it feels like a season of dying, um, and yet we don't have a general conference yet until 2024 to help us um, hopefully move forward um, in um, being a more inclusive denomination. Um, what we don't have, um, you know, it, uh, I mean, we all have children on this call. And so, you know, the phrase of it's easier to, um, to birth something new than to, you know, raise the dead. Um, I would never say that to a room of, uh, of mothers, that it was easier to birth than <laughs> raise the dead. Uh, but I think that um, the sentiment is that uh, we are stuck in this place um, where we can't, uh, where something new can't happen, but the dead isn't gone and forgotten yet either. Um, mm -hmm. So, but what gives me uh, what gives me joy in the midst of that is that it gives us um, a little bit of quiet time uh, to uh, look back at our history. I've been really thankful these uh, past seven years to be on uh, the uh, board of archives and history um, and seeing the kind of the transformation, especially recently, that is happening there about uh, over over those years about 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 bringing forth the parts of our history that um, 
we may gloss over or other folks that say Methodist don't ever talk about. Um, and what does that, uh, so I think that there's a lot of value in looking back. I think there's a lot of value in looking uh, from side to side um, at what, um, at, at where people are going, you know, what innovations are they doing? You know, we have all these folks that are starting online only churches uh, recently. Um, and part of, I mean, we all did online church for months or years. Um, and, uh, but creating a new one that was just online, you know, what does that mean? Um, and that's, that is a neat thing of being in the tech sector of Seattle is that you've got a lot of hunger for innovation um, and uh, in those areas, it's always in particular, you know, genres, but it's, it's still interesting. Um, and then last looking forward is, you know, who is it the, how do we live into who is the church that we want to be, you know, and how do we go ahead and live into that now and not wait, not wait for somebody new to sit in that vacant chair, uh, not wait mm -hmm. until uh, we've got that line stricken out um, of our of our space. And um, I come from an annual conference with a bishop that was very supportive of um, of being inclusive, of going into spaces that, you know, the discipline says we ought not go. I know that's not the experience in Upper New York um, in recent years, um, but I do know that there's been a, um, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of shifts happening just in the past few, uh, few months or a year that have been uh, really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, I, you know, what gives me hope is that there is um, you know, there's a great convergence of things that are happening. You, I mean, Jessica mentioned Phyllis Tickle, that great convergence every 500 years that uh, brings forth something new. Um, I'm, and we may not exactly know what it is except looking back, but I'm really excited to have a strong progressive Wesleyan denomination that we haven't had as Methodists in our history. You know, we were progressive in some ways, I think, but, um, you know, ex at, at least since the since the 60s, and especially since 1988, we have not had it in America. And I would love to see uh, that. I'd love to see that continue here. And I'd love to see us con continue that with a connection with um, what Methodism looks like across the globe in all of its diversity. Um, and that we're just trying to figure out what that looks like. So that was the most wordy and vague answer uh, to your question, Natalie, that you probably ever heard, so. Oh no, but I, I loved it and it was very eloquent and beautiful. Thank you. See, see, you're good at this, Jeremy. This is your spiritual gift. Oh, <laughs> uh, I've, I'm drinking coffee. Yeah. I, appreciate, I appreciate the fact that you also kind of like, I know that the tendency and I think a lot of evangelical churches and to some extent, some mainline churches has been kind of some stolen valor like oh we were at the forefront of fighting against slavery or we were at the forefront of like you know fighting for xyz rights and it's like no you weren't some people were a lot of people weren't let's let's not pretend that george whitefield isn't the reason why slavery was legalized in the colony of georgia yeah sorry Oops. yeah um Let's not forget that our church is all split over slavery during like the mid part of the 19th century, you know, so I appreciate the fact that you, you know, are saying we gotta, 
actually kind of look at that and see what that means. We're not as progressive as we like to pretend we are. Yeah, the, yeah, the Archives and History Group has been really good in, um, in uh, recent years about lifting that up. I'm sorry, Emily, I didn't mean to talk over you. No, no, that's okay. I just, I, I had this question pop in my brain that I hadn't thought of before. And I wonder, I don't know how I would Great. answer it either. We were talking about um, the ways that we communicate about matters of faith with those who identify as the nuns, right? The, or the spiritual, but not religious. Um, what, what sort of metaphor or, or imagery do you suppose would be most helpful in talking with folks about the split? I hear a lot of people using divorce imagery that gets us part of the way there, but is fraught in a lot of ways. I heard you use sort of death and resurrection imagery, which is really helpful for people who grew up with that kind of language, but maybe not so much for people outside of Christianity. I guess I guess my question would be like, how, how would you explain to people who are not steeped in church or in Christian teachings and experiences, what is even happening in the denomination? Hmm. You know, I think for um, all of us as church workers that, you know, we certainly walk through folks with a divorce. And so there's, there's certain imagery here that, 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 that makes sense. I think more often um, we walk through people through death and resurrection. Uh, through the death of the parent or a partner or a child. Um, and so that we're more accustomed to walking with people and people think of the church, especially um, when walking people through death. So the metaphor that, mo that we're talking about the Methodist Church in particular, United Methodist Church in particular, um, I think about a, um, uh, that we have been caregivers of an ailing parent for a long time. Mm -hmm. there has been a parent that has um, uh, not been able to, uh, that had many, many glory days perhaps behind, um, and yet, um, uh, and I haven't watched enough of, of succession to know um, what this, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to make that metaphor because I, I really don't, I'm, I'm not going to use that as a, as a image because I, I don't know all of, all of that. I may be into dangerous territory there. Um, but it certainly speaks to our experiences of the most emotional parts are reconciling conflicts between siblings when their parent dies or when their parent is terminal and they're trying to find care for them or just entering hospice and how do you care for your parent when your kids are squabbling. And I feel like that that's a metaphor that works better in my experience. Um, for you know, for what for what we're dealing with that it, it feels like that the parent church is not going to be with us much longer and so what are the institutions that are passed on to um, which child um, what um, all the kids in succession are all super weird and messed up um, in different ways um, but um, which we all are as well um, but it makes me think about what are the ways that we can um, uh, uh, realize that when, when we've started something new, we still have a familial relationship with 
Global Methodist Church, other folks that have, have left, um, but we no longer have our parent with us. Um, and what does that mean for our, our new relationships? I don't know what that is in my personal life. I still have both my parents. Um, and um, so I'm not sure exactly what it looks, what it feels. I don't know what it feels like in my heart, like it does for our parishioners when that happens. Um, but that's the, to me, Emily, that's the metaphor that makes a little bit more sense. I feel like that divorce language is really fraught with um, both sides and not failing to name the abuse and the abuser, you know, things like that. Does that, how, how does that reflect, how does that reflect back to you, Emily? Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I think that I had fallen into the habit of using divorce language for a couple of reasons. Uh, the legalistic aspects of things, but also being reminded that that there's a lot of that that happens in the division of uh, of property and interpretation of will uh, of the will. That that I've walked alongside of have been divorces where a, a they, they've been a, a splitting of a heterosexual marriage where uh, the the woman um, stands in power and steps away from an unhealthy situation. And so there has been that sort of um, naming of abuse and and that sort of thing. But there's also been a certain sort of freedom to, to redefine without being under the who am I if I can be free of the harm journey with most recently and that the divorce imagery resonated for me there. Um, I see a lot of my LGBTQIA plus siblings really starting to ask questions like once all the once all of the people who would wish me harm are gone, who can I be? Who am I? Who who will I be? How will I be? How will I kind of come into my own when I'm not under that thumb anymore? And so I think for me, the divorce language has been really helpful, but I can also see a lot of the value in seeing it as, as the death of a parent um, and, and sort of the children who are finding their way in the aftermath. I think both. I think not a perfect metaphor and both have a lot of benefits and both come with some drawbacks oh I yeah. hear that for sure and I think that um I think that we're doing exactly what we should be doing of finding new metaphors um, what are the new wineskins we could put this message into um that speaks to people for some folks it's divorce for some folks it's um uh caring for an ailing parent um for some folks um uh, it's uh, co computer language of a computer virus that you're trying to get rid of or, you know, um, uh, or optimizing 
um, deprecated an ancient code uh, that doesn't no longer stands the test of time, uh, things like that. So I think that, you know, um, it's important to find the metaphor that speaks both to you and to your congregation, but it's okay to play with different ones. You know, worship is playtime. We all have young kids. You know, worship is playtime to try on different metaphors and language and words and imagery that uh, may uh, may may work well for us, um, or it may, uh, or maybe it doesn't work, and then you cast it off and say, "I'm not going to read from the message again in worship." Ugh. Um, uh, but um, but then the next week you do, and you're like, "Oh man, this is amazing." <laughs> so I think that I think it's great to have that question, Emily, in figuring out how is it that we. Um, uh, uh, what are the uh, metaphors and imagery and vessels that allow us to communicate the gospel um, in ways that speak to our situation? Um, in my um, my theology, you know, you have to give that theology of worship whenever you're ordained. I don't know how it is in your all's conference, but we have to read our, um, our theology of ministry, um, like paragraph or word or page or whatever um, mine was a mine was a sentence um and it was um uh, name the reality and tell the story that gets us through it um, that's my idea of ministry and worship and things like that and so i think that in our naming of the reality that's important to dive into on the on my blog the judicial council decisions all these methodist minutiae um what the anti-gays are saying um things like that um, but we need to name the story that gets through it. And I think that's where you're getting at about what is the metaphor and image that's going to be the canoe that takes us there. So um, thank you for the question. Yeah, totally. So in the midst of all of this going on and everything else going on in life and in the world, what excites you right now, Jeremy? Oh, goodness. Um, uh, swallowing a, a thing of coffee. Sorry. Um, uh, what excites me are the, um, it really depends on your region. And I think it does come back to that disaffiliation question is, you know, I am very connected to Oklahoma. Uh, that's where I grew up. That's my, um, where I was, um, I, I was an elder um, in the Oklahoma Annual Conference for eight years. Um, in those eight years, I served in three conferences, but, you know, whatever. Um, it feels like that in that space, I'm excited for how um, seeing the megachurches leave, um, seeing um, some folks that have always been uh, pretty loud, toxic people leave, um, has led to, um, I was worried about survivor's guilt, but it's actually like a breath of fresh air, like, oh, okay, you know, uh, this person, you know, these folks that have exist, they've exerted like a downward pressure for a long time, you know, that that weight is going to be slowly lifted off. And yeah, we're not going to have as much money, we're not going to have as many people, whatever, you know, that there's this sense of rebirth of, wow, now that we, now we can really live into something new. And so that's going to take some shifting time. That's what gives me hope for those conferences that are more diverse, that are more, um, have folks that that are going through a winnowing period, uh, that they are going to, um, that there's going to be, um, there's going to be a lot of harm and a lot of heartache. Um, but there's, 
uh, there's going to be the potential for more radical transformation. Out here in the Northwest, I think we have 30 churches that are disaffiliating out of 400. Um, and so that's not a, that's, that's not a, um, uh, that's not going to be enough to jolt us into a season of innovation, into a season of, um, wow, we can do all these new things. You know, that's not what is going to be happening up here in, in our region. I don't know what it is in New in the upper New York, New England area. Um, but I feel like that in ours, um, what excites me is um, the different uh, innovative ways of doing church, uh, church outside of our walls, outside of our borders. Um, this month, we're doing a, a worship series called Holy Ground, drawing on Corey Turnpenny's um, uh, church. Um, mm -hmm. And so you all are, um, uh, Upper New York is definitely lead, uh, giving us some innovation as well. I don't mean to say that um, Northwest has all that because, you know, we we purchased a resource from her, uh, these uh, to use um, that, that you all are learning in um, in outdoor ministry in different ways. Uh, but I think that the. Uh, so so what Corey's doing, what you all are doing, you know, what um, uh, different things we're trying out um, is really exciting work. It um, it's very computer hackering because hackering, that's not a word. Um, uh, it's very, um, because you are trying, you know, you try every different method you can to try to get at the problem. There's some obstacle and you, you just, you just kind of throw everything at it. It costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of years. It costs a lot of relationships. It costs a lot of care for the souls of people that are in this work for very little return, but that very little return becomes a seed for something. And I think that's really important. So for our for our tiny humans um, and for our um, adult, for our big humans that mm -hmm. um, still need to have that childlike heart. So um, can I turn the question back to you? What are you all seeing that is giving you uh, hope for, um, uh, for something new? I just yeah. want to drop a plug. So Corey actually was originally going to be one of the people on our podcast um, and she had to, she, she couldn't do the time commitment, which is absolutely fine. You know, get a set mm -hmm. boundaries for yourself, but she was one of our classmates at CRCDS. So we love mm -hmm. her very much. Oh goodness. So, yeah. York doing so many fun things with Corey doing that. I'm good friends with Sarah Barron and they're having um, Bishop Olivetto out um, yeah, for their record selling anniversary. And um, I've got, or you've got so many good um, uh, clergy and, um, and, and laity that are, that are in your region. I'm good friends with uh, Tara Barnes of the United Women of Faith. And um, so you all are, um, Upper New York is doing lots of amazing things. We so, have lots of dangerous, yeah, we, we have lots of dangerous liberal lady preachers up here. Very yeah, much. And laity. Yes. Yes. And laity. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I think what gives me hope and excites me, hmm, turning that question around on us, you dare to I'm sorry, no how uppity. Before. Um, you know, what gives me, what continues to excite me and give me hope in all of this is how my kids are reacting to it. Mm -hmm. um, and the little theologians that I am raising um, they have their, they don't have the decades of history and they also don't have the decades of angst that we have. And 
the decades of prejudice and harm, all of that is not in them. They'll grow up in a torn world and have to interpret things for themselves. But right now they see things with a very pure heart, which is exactly what Jesus told us to do. And Xander, my youngest, he's four, uh, tells me periodically on Sundays, I want to go to church because Jesus gives me ice cream. And that is his theology. And it is a beautiful one. That's awesome. Thank you. Yes. I absolutely love that. <laughs> um, I, I think what, what I would say gives me hope is, uh, I mean, on, on a micro level, last fall, the congregation where I serve joined the Reconciling Ministries Network with overwhelming um, and so that that excites me and, and we did so in a lot of ways just in the nick of time I you know I'm, I'm seeing the impact that the church when they would not have been sure prior whether they would have been welcome in the in this particular congregation um my predecessor did not align theologically with the majority of the congregation and was famous for his annual anti-sermon um vigorously yeah anyway Lots of wonderful. That's a good Sunday to sleep in. It sounds like Emily. Yeah, yeah, lots of things that I could say about him, and I don't want to make his whole personhood be about this one thing. And also, important to name the harm that he caused and the legacy that he left in the community. And so, after five years uh, of me being in this appointment and doing a lot of repair work with the broader community, and then becoming a reconciling congregation and being very public about this uh, press release in the local newspaper. Um, watching our relationship with the community shift in a healthy and holy way has been something that has given me a lot of hope. Yeah. Excited for June, I think it's 8th community has their annual pride fest and we're planning on having youth there for the first time ever and um yeah i'm excited about that yeah pride festivals are wonderful yeah i remember the first time i marched with so i work for a health center in uh, buffalo new york and the first time i marched with them at the pride festival and we came down to the corner of um elmwood and uh Allen Street in Allentown, which is famously kind of a, a queer neighborhood, it was like coming into the kingdom of heaven because there's so many different people that were of different races and different um, sizes and dressed in beautiful different clothes. And it was just, and everybody's happy and excited. So um, I, that's a very treasured memory for me. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, totally, totally. So Jeremy and oh, I didn't get to say what I do. I, oh yes, yes, yes. No, no. I sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I was going to step <laughs> on your on your rainbow painted toes. I'm so sorry, Jess. <laughs> um, so 
the uh, I guess what gives me hope. This is so funny. Um, my husband and I. My husband's really into permaculture. Um, we have this massive garden, um, and we have been planting kind of like miniature food forests. So we have like all kinds of different foods, strawberries and onions and garlics and um, tomatoes. And we also have orchard trees um, as well. And um, we went out to the Soil and Water Organization in New York State and we bought like 250 shrubs, native shrubs and trees. And we planted almost all of them this past weekend, which is Earth Day. So. Mm. And then likewise, we got a bunch of them. I'm on the conservation board of my town and we also got a bunch for the town. Originally, we were gonna give them away at our farm and home days and that was canceled. So now we're going to, we got permission, we're gonna put them in the new park, in the park once they finish doing a bunch of new projects there. And for some reason, planting like 300 trees and shrubs for the future is just giving me a massive amount of hope I'm like I don't I don't know if I'm going to actually change the world but if I can like change some small part of it in a way that um, benefits um, children in the future like my and I was thinking about my daughter as my daughters as I was planting these trees with my husband it's like if if even if even if like a tenth of these trees survive to the future and make the world a better place then I've done at least something good. <laughs> yeah, also, absolutely. My, my Bible study, my Monday night Bible study, I have people who are not believers, but man, they love learning about the Bible. And we have wonderful conversations together about being neighborly and collegial and what it means to be in community with each other. So that gives me hope too. Yeah, that's fantastic. So Jeremy, the closing question that we always ask our guests is what one thing do you want the world to know about God slash the divine, the holy, the sacred? What one thing? Um, it is from Frozen 2. Um, uh, Olaf from Frozen 2 uh, reminds us that water has a memory. You know, oh. Olaf is made of water, you know, things like that. We all have young kids. We all know Frozen 2. Come on. Um, mm -hmm. the, um, in fact, I've, um, I think Frozen 2 is the journey through the Board of Ordained Ministry, um, mm -hmm. but we can, that's for another podcast. Um, but I think what people, I think what I always want people to know is that God has a memory, and that doesn't mean a memory of everything that you've done wrong and that you are a worthless worm of a person because of it. Um, it's not that um, God has a memory of everything that we've done wrong. That doesn't matter. It's more that, you know, God has a memory of being faithful and being present to people after seasons of being away, after season, uh, through seasons of being excluded um, and harmed. Um, and that um, in the movie, they use that memory to recreate, you know, ice sculptures. Elsa uses her ice sculpture power, you know, to recreate mm -hmm. these things in the present so that they can be reminded of what happened in the past. And so I think that that's what we are called to. That's the good news that I get from um, the gospel of Disney um, is that uh, gospel informed by Disney, perhaps um, this will play very well in Florida, I'm sure. 
um, <laughs> that they have a, there's a, um, you know, God has a memory and that means that God is um, with us in those memorable times. God is with us um, to help us recreate things that either um, allow us to um, build something new, um, allow us to kind of form something and then just let it go, you know, like, you know, the, uh, the ice sculpture of Hans, you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, and that we are able to, uh, that that's the good news is it's, it's good news that God has a memory, um, yeah. because God has a memory of being, uh, present to you in prevenient grace and justifying grace in, in, in our continuing, um, um, sanctifying grace. So he's the good shepherd. He leaves the night, the flock and, and goes to retrieve. He leaves the 99 and goes to retrieve the one who's lost. There you go. Mm -hmm. Amen, sister. Yeah. I take so much, so much wonderful theology from frozen Two as well. Mm -hmm. And when I was preparing to go to the board, because I just finally got ordained last year. Oh, congratulations. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. It was a lot. I don't know what we're ordaining you into, but it's something. So. Oh no, I know. I don't know either. Um, but that, you know, so A, that touches on, you know, Anna's song, the next right thing. Yeah. We, we don't know everything, but the next thing we should do is always the next thing we should do. That's very important as people of faith. And I was very touched by um, Elsa's, uh, well, her second big song in the movie, um, Show Yourself. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that's given me a lot of power as it, it, how, how, how do I find myself in my ministry and what do I do? Like I, I am, I am, I myself am constantly a puzzle where I am always finding new pieces and Elsa her in her own identity journey, you know, just discovers more and more about what she can do with her powers and that there's benefits and also risks and there's danger, but then there's joy. It's very true in the ministry as well. And when she comes to the big aha moment in that song and she discovers that she is the fifth element, she connects herself with everything else that's in her surroundings and it connects her right to the past and to her ancestors and to her mom. So the more that we learn, this about is the right community for this is the right podcast for uh, Disney theology. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and, and don't even get me started because I got so much to say about Moana, oh. but that's going to have to wait for a different episode. But, you know, when we the more we learn about ourselves, the more we learn about everything around us and the more we learn about the past, mm -hmm. it's all connected. It is. And we all know that we learn through repetition. So the 80th iteration of watching Frozen 2 or listening to Bluey or whatever it is in the background um, that our kids will, um, are, those are the stories that are guiding our kids. Um, mm -hmm. and, that's, um, and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy, thank you so, so thank much you. for sparing oh, your time. for having me. What an amazing invitation to be reconnected with Jessica again. Um, and then, I, um, you know, I, 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 I am the product of, of many uh, dangerous uh, liberal lady pre preachers, but um, I'm not one myself. Um, and so I'm always bettered when I'm, in, when I'm in their presence. So thank you for this gift today. Oh, thank you're you. very good. We've had a great time. Thank yes. you. This has been a lot of fun. Yes. Peace and love. Great. Right. Take Bye. care.
Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.